Good evening, everybody. Thank you for being with us. We're delighted uh, this evening to have our university president, Father Mark Porman, uh, with us. So he's, he's right over here. And, uh, and a couple rows behind him is the provost of, of our university, Dr. Tom Green. So please welcome them both. I, on the other hand, am Father Charlie Gordon, and uh, Dr. Karen Eifler and I uh, direct the uh, Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture uh, here at the University of Portland, and we're, we are your hosts uh, this evening. Now, there are some housekeeping things that we want to, uh, to talk about first. One is if you are a K-12 through teacher of any description at all, and you would like to receive PDUs through special arrangement with the School of Education. Uh, there's a, those, are, those are professional development units for, for you lay people out there. Um, there there's a sign-up sheet for those, and if you just sign up for those tonight or at any other Garaventa Center event, uh, we'll get those sent off to you uh, right away. Speaking of signing up, if you want to sign up because you're here as a student for a class, those sheets will be available on this uh, table to my left at the end of the evening. And uh, you'll also uh, see on that table some flyers for some upcoming Garaventa Center events. And uh, we're really excited about a number of them, but I'd like to just highlight a couple that are imminent and which should be wonderful. Uh, the first is a, a special showing next week of the film Arrival uh, in the Bringing Eyes of Faith to Film series in which we, we look at popular cinema through a theological lens. And for this occasion, uh, Dr. Eifler and I will be joined by Dr. Shannon Meyer, uh, the physicist, and also by uh, Jim Bailey, the philosopher. And we're going to talk about that remarkable film from all of those disciplinary perspectives. Um, so it should be uh, a fascinating evening. That's going to be on Wednesday at uh, 7.15 p.m. in Shiley Hall 319. And then uh, an incredible evening is in the offing. We have the Women of the Book uh, concert in the Chapel of Christ the Teacher on Thursday, February 22nd at 7.30. And that's going to uh, be a night of extraordinary music, uh, sacred art songs, uh, world premieres of marvelous music about, about the women of the Holy Scriptures. And this is going to be done in collaboration between the Garaventa Center and uh, the city of Portland's uh, Jewish uh, community. So that should be an extraordinary evening on Thursday, February 22nd. And of course, it's free. Uh, tonight we've come together to hear a talk by um, Father Paul Coleman, CSC. You can tell by that CSC that, that he's a Holy Cross priest, uh, as I am. Uh, the Congregation of Holy Cross founded the University of Portland 
113 years ago, I think, and also founded the University of Notre Dame, which is significant because that's where Father Coleman is uh, a professor of theology. And he's also the director of the Center for Social Concerns at the University of Notre Dame, which is um, their equivalent to our Moreau Center. Um, they have a lot of things that are the equivalent of things here, because after all, they are the University of Portland of the Midwest. <laughs> and uh, Father uh, Coleman, Paul, has had uh, a lifelong uh, passionate engagement with Africa and with the church in Africa. And he's a distinguished scholar in a field called missiology, which is the study of uh, the church's uh, missionary efforts. Um, and both from a historical perspective and, and also thinking about the present and looking into the future of the church's missionary efforts. Now, for centuries, the church, in its missionary efforts, thought of itself as bringing Jesus Christ to other lands. But then, uh, in the, about the middle of the 20th century, there was a, a brilliant insight by um, a Catholic theologian, I think it might have been Cardinal Danilev. And this insight that he had was, you know, we're not really bringing Jesus to those other lands. We're going to those other lands to find him already there. And this uh, insight caused a kind of a revolution in how um, missionaries thought about what they were doing. And, and I would, uh, when I think about uh, Father Coleman's work, I think of it as being a, a living out of the implications of that insight. Uh, what does that mean, really, to say that we, we go to other lands to discover uh, Jesus already there? And uh, so it's... it's in that context that um, I'd like us to, to welcome him to, to give our talk this evening on the contribution of Africa to the church in the past, the present, and the future. So please help me to welcome him. Um, and I appreciate the introduction by Charlie. And Charlie has an important role to play in my. Um, is this go on? 
Yeah, I'll walk around. In my life as a student of Africa, because he and I lived together in East Africa when I was a seminarian and was there for the first time. Charlie became famous in the neighborhood I lived in for doing his laundry in a unique way. Um, he um, would sit on the roof of our house in this somewhat tough, slum-like neighborhood in Nairobi and have his feet in a bucket with his clothes and clean them by sort of like riding a, riding a bike in this bucket with soap and his clothes. Um, but he was a teacher in a seminary at the time, and so he and I discovered Africa together. We were living in Nairobi, I was a seminarian. I watched this painting be painted. It is the backdrop of a chapel of a Jesuit seminary in Nairobi. It's kind of the risen Christ. Um, and it, it was designed by a Jesuit from Cameroon who actually came to that college when I was there as a student and spoke about painting. Um, so that was my first introduction to Africa as a seminarian when Charlie was there as a professor. Um, and as he said, Africa has become important to me in all sorts of ways. First of all, it's my academic career to study the African Catholic Church, its history, its theology, its current reality and past realities. Um, I would also say it's had a personal impact on me as a believer. Um, I've really come to value learning to love the church in two different places in the world. I've grown up in this country, I've been a priest in this country, and the Catholic Church in the United States is close to my heart. But it also sometimes drives me crazy. Just like people you love can drive you crazy. And then I've spent about five or five and a half years in Africa, living and serving the church there. And I love the church in Africa, but at times, the African church drives me crazy. Like anybody you love might drive you crazy. So I sort of think about having these two different windows on the life of the church as comparative anger management <laughs> or comparative frustration management. That when the church in this country drives me crazy, I think about the church in Africa. And when I'm in Africa and the church there drives me crazy, I think about the church in this country and I celebrate the gifts that different aspects of the church have. Um, and, you know, as Lent gets upon us, I invite you to think about what grounds you in your faith. Because my conviction is the more we know about the church's richness as a diverse community of believers all over the world, the more grounded we can be, the more we can manage our frustration as believers. Um, which is a good thing to be able to manage. Um, this church, this talk's going to have three parts. First, I want to talk about some of the present growth of the Catholic Church in Africa and the world, and then talk about how people have understand, understood traditionally from a historical perspective the Catholic Church in Africa, a history of three plantings. Then I want to reconsider that framework, mindful especially of a Catholic perspective on them. And then I want to talk about implications for the global church due to African 
So pretty straightforward, three parts. So first, some demographics. Where the Christians are in the world today. The Americas, North and South America, together have the largest single number, but neither continent probably has, Latin America might have more than Europe, but Europe is pretty close to having the largest number of Catholics, Christians. But Sub-Saharan Africa has grown as a percentage of the world's Christians like no other place. So about one out of every, between five and six Christians on Earth is now from Sub-Saharan Africa. That's going to approach one-third probably in the next 30 or 40 years. And continue to grow. The Christian movement, Catholic and non-Catholic, has grown enormously in Africa. These are the countries of Africa. This is a slide I'd like to show that gives you a sense of how big Africa is. So all of the continental United States, all of Europe, and all of China fit inside of Africa. Sixty-some countries, thousands of languages, uh, maybe 900 million people, 500 million of them Christian. It's a complex continent with lots going on there. Christianity in Africa, 1900. 80% of the world's Christians are European or North America. 118 years ago. Now, 60% of them live in the global east or the global south. Latin America, Africa, or Asia. So a huge shift in 100 years in the demographics of the world Christian movement. There are 2 billion Christians on earth, about one-third of the world's population. In 1900, there were 9 million Christians in Africa, almost all in Egypt or Ethiopia, ancient Christian cultures. In 1945, there were 30 million Christians in Africa. 1970, 115 million. Now, maybe 500 million. This is the largest change in religious identity in world history. There's nothing coming in world history as the growth of Christianity in Africa over the last 75, 50 or 75 years. It has enormous consequences not only for Africans, but for Christian believers everywhere. And it's growing. So facts about this world Christianity as it lives in Africa. 600,000 different kinds of congregations, 13,500 denominations. Most of those denominations are completely unknown elsewhere. They're very local. But not all. Probably a third or a quarter of the Christians in Africa are Catholic. But about 40%, 190 million of the 500 million, are what we call renewalists, Pentecostals, or charismatic Catholics. People for whom the life of the Holy Spirit is really important, right? So, and between about 40% of Africans' Christians are Catholics. So, here's a quiz. The top five Catholic countries in Africa. What country in Africa has the most Catholics? Simon, you can answer. You could, yes. Rwanda? Rwanda, no. Rwanda's not even in the top five, so you can save that yes for later. Nigeria. is no. Nigeria would be second. The top country is the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Then Nigeria. Third? Uganda. Then Tanzania. 
then Kenya. My own life as a scholar focuses on those last three countries, Uganda, Tanzania, and Kenya. Currently writing about the church in Eastern Africa. That would be the old British East Africa that's given its name to that part of the world. <clears throat> this is a slide. The dots that move across the slide represent the place in the world that's the geographic center of the world Christian movement at that time. So, for instance, um, 30, Jerusalem in 30 AD had all the world's Christians. Gradually, they started to move to the north and the west, then rapidly across into the Mediterranean, then rapidly back to the eastern Mediterranean, then north as Europe became a Christian place. Around 1500, between Vienna and Budapest, it started to move south and west, because that's when Columbus encountered the New World, and Christianity moved across the Atlantic into the Americas. And then around 1900, it's a very dramatic shift, more or less due south. So that between 1900 and 2000, dramatic moves south. That's going to continue to go that way according to projections. So there's this dramatic southward pull of Christians in the world. The representative Christianity in the world in 1900 was European and North American. Now the representative Christianity is African or Latin American, and increasingly African, um, which is exciting and challenging. Now there's a standard story of how Christianity came to Africa talks about three different historical plantings. First of all, the first few centuries of the Christian movement, Northern Africa was a Christian place. From Morocco to Egypt was solidly Christian. Different kinds of Christians, but solidly Christian. Now that, according to this planting, that was sort of lost when Islam grew. The Muslim movement kind of spread across North Africa and from Morocco to Indonesia these days, all across North Africa, South, the Middle East, South Asia, to Indonesia. Strongly Islamic presence in those parts of the world. What well, evangelicals call the 1040 window because it's 10 degrees and 40 degrees latitude. The second planting came later in the 16th to 18th centuries when the Portuguese explorers moved down from Spain and Portugal around Africa, planting Christian colonies in certain places. And then the third planting is the modern missionary movement of the 19th century, Protestants and Catholics. And it's that planting that is responsible for most of the Christian growth we think of today. When we say African Christianity, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's that third planting. So that's sort of the standard story. So here's ancient Northern Africa. This is the part over here that's all the way to Morocco, and that's Egypt. So sort of slide this slide over that way. You can sort of see how the Antropolitania are over there. Um, that's ancient North Africa, Roman provinces. And according to the free planting model, when Islam, Islam expanded, you can just see this entire part of the world became mostly Muslim between the 7th and 9th or 10th centuries. African Christianity was more or less squashed. So the second stage two is these Portuguese explorers that go around Africa, famously in a place called the Kingdom of the Congo, which is now in Congo and Angola, West Africa, 
talk about that in a minute. But these explorers landed in places the Portuguese wanted to trade, and they also brought Christianity with them. And stage three is these 19th and 20th century missions, Catholic and Protestant, all over the continent, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa. Because Northern Africa stayed Muslim. So that's sort of stage three. Africa evangelized by Europeans before and after colonial overrule. Almost everywhere in Africa was subject to European colonialism except Ethiopia and Liberia. Nearly all the continent was ruled by Europeans. French, English, etc. Oh, sorry. Now, sorry about that. There are ways we should challenge this three planting North Africa, Portuguese explorers, modern missionaries. I think theologically you should, we should challenge it. Father Charlie said it beautifully, quoting Jean Damielou in Salvation of the Nations, that in fact, theologically we might say, really, God's been at work in Africa a long time, even before Christians ever came Right? So, what extent does Christianity continue a process of God's activity in Africa? And how does the coming of Christianity change God's activity in Africa? Those are interesting questions, theologically speaking. I'm going to talk a little bit more historically, but these are very good theological questions. And if you want to learn about that, you can take Father Simon's, or Simon's course in the theology department. You can teach about that or maybe other scholars who are in the university. Um, and holding the theological and the historical perspective together is demanding. I want to think about challenging those three findings historically. There are reasons why this is an inadequate framework. It, it overlooks as much as it reveals. So, how did that happen again? Sorry. Um, first of all, Christianity in Northern Africa did not disappear. Egypt and Ethiopia remained places of substantial Christianity to this day. Second of all, ancient African Christianity's contributions are pretty amazing to Christian Israel. Talk some about that. Third, the Congolese Catholic Kingdom in West Africa was a remarkable achievement. The more we know about it, the more it astounds us by the richness of the life of faith. And finally, the fourth millennium of Christianity is not into Africa, but out of Africa. I'll talk about that in a minute. So to talk a little bit about North Africa. The more we discover about the remains of some of the ancient Christian kingdoms in, between Egypt and present-day Sudan, the more astounding they are. There were huge cathedrals in what was called Nubia, which is close to what is today called Nuba, but not identical to it. We, these, these mosaics were just uncovered about 30 years ago in a cathedral that was covered by sand for about seven centuries in Faraz, discovered in the 70s or 80s, and have been excavated slowly ever since. Ethiopia has a vital Christianity. Some of you could even visit it today and see some of the vital Christian activity there. Profound ancient churches, very ritualized life of faith, um, incredible kinds of work. There's a theologian who just died 
Two years ago, Tom Bowden, a Protestant theologian in the U.S., taught at Drew University in New Jersey. He talks about seven amazing abiding achievements of African Christianity that are gifts to the entire Christian world Christian movement. He talks about the first Christian university in Alexandria. The way we interpret the Bible through exegesis relied on African precursors. That the notion of dogma is first formulated as an idea of teaching of that kind of level of sophistication and importance from an African theologian, Athanasius. The practices of ecumenical councils, monasticism, the Neoplatonism at the root of African Christian philosophy, and Christian rhetoric and dialectic. For Odin, these are all African Christian achievements, more than European, more than Asian, African Christian achievements. And he's gone, in his Center for Early African Christianity, he's really worked hard to try to make these achievements known. Second, Christianity in the Congo. This is the kingdom of the Congo. They're sort of between Congo and Angola, just below the equator. This was a pretty interesting Catholic kingdom with ties to the Vatican. They sent ambassadors to the Vatican, and the, the Vatican sent ambassadors to Congo. Congolese priests were educated in Rome. Bishops were sent, who were African, to Congo. What we, the more we know about the kingdom of the Congo, the sadder its demise is. And its demise is largely due to the slave trade. Congolese people were among the most traded in the Afri Atlantic slave trade, to Brazil especially, but also some to the United States and the Caribbean. And it sort of ended that kingdom over a period of about 100 years through a series of catastrophic military defeats that led to enslavement and then ex export abroad. Finally, the fourth planting of African Christianity is that African Christianity is now itself a global phenomenon. In the town of Seattle, I am sure there are African Christian churches. I don't know if there are African Christian churches in Portland. Are there any? If they are, they would probably be Nigeria or Ghanaian. I live in Chicago right now. There are a dozen African Christian churches in Chicago, founded by Africans. Branches of Nigeria or Ghanaian churches or South African churches, where Africans but also non-Africans pray on Sunday. If you go to a place like New York or Houston or London or Paris, lots of African churches. The largest church in Europe on a given Sunday is in Kiev, in Ukraine. 11,000 worshipers every Sunday. It's a Nigerian Pentecostal church in Kiev. African Christianity is a global phenomenon because African Christians carry their faith with them and pray the way they want where they go. And non-Africans join them because the worship they celebrate is joyful. Uh, so, again, just kind of thinking about the limitations of the three plantings framework. Now I want to talk about that, those three plantings from a Catholic perspective in particular. And think particularly about Rome and North Africa, not so much Egypt or Ethiopia. Because I think Rome and North Africa 
is more a precursor to the Catholic presence in Africa than these other two places in Africa. I'll talk about why. Second, I think it's worth highlighting the achievements of Congolese Catholicism, that kingdom of the Congo I talked about. Finally, I think it's worth noting African Catholic missionary achievements. Has any of you ever heard of the RCIA? Do you know what that is? The initiation, right? The Catholic initiation, the Christian initiation of adults. That was brought to the Catholic Church by a missionary who went to Africa, Cardinal Avijari, who was an early church historian and knew how Christians in the first four or five centuries of the church were initiated. And he brought the same process to Uganda and Tanzania when they evangelized those parts of the world, his missionaries in Africa, sometimes called the White Fathers, not because of their skin color, though they were all white until recently. Now we have black white fathers. But they were called White Fathers because they had white robes in an Islamic environment. So their founder sort of inaugurated the RCIA because it made sense for him as a missionary in sub-Saharan Africa. Finally, these days we know that African Catholic religious and clergy are all over the place. I was at a parish in Beaverton last night talking at St. Cecilia. The assistant pastor there is a Nigerian priest. And there'd be a number of dioceses in this country that have African priests serving in the parishes. Lots of them. Some parishes have a pretty substantial, or some dioceses have a pretty substantial number. I'm not sure about the archdiocese of Portland. But there's lots of African clergy and religious all over the world. Now, a little bit about Roman North Africa. The first Christian writing in Latin, and the first time the Bible is translated into Latin, that we know of is the Silicon Martyr accounts in 180 AD in North Africa. So Christianity is translated into Latin not in Rome or Italy or Europe, but in North Africa. Second, when we think about the Roman Catholic or Christian Church of North Africa, it was much more of a practical theology. They talked about Christ's power rather than kind of speculative philosophical work of other places like the Alexandrian Greek-speaking church of North Africa towards Egypt. Again, I'm trying to just distinguish particularly a Catholic precursor within North Africa. And I'm saying Roman North Africa is a particularly life, a particularly suggestive way to think about this. Roman North Africa became a way, a place where apologetics, arguments about Christianity's truth value, were developed. So Christian rhetoric and argumentation, less philosophical explanation and more apologetics. Roman North Africa seems to have featured that kind of way of talking about Christianity. Finally, Roman North Africa was a place of profound persecution. And Roman North Africa was a site of a number of martyrdoms that became influential for the whole Christian movement. And accounts about their martyrdoms were also written in Latin. 
um, up to the legalization of Christianity with Constantine. These were important moments. When people were being killed for being Christian, they often, some people apostatized. They denounced their faith, right? Not everyone became a martyr. And this led to questions. What do you do after someone has apostatized? This is a very practical question that the Roman North African church faced. And its theological creativity evolved in relation to this. These are certain North African theologians that scholars of the early church recognized as particularly influential. Tertullian, Cyprian, the Donatists, and Augustine. Each of them featured in Roman North Africa and thought about welcoming back people who had apostatized in different ways. It was an ongoing argument about how strict you had to be to get back into the Christian church after you had denounced Christianity in order to avoid being tortured. Roman North Africa was a place where these practical questions were enacted and argued over and became part of the church's life for several centuries prior to the legalization of Christianity and after. This led to a great reverence for martyrs, like the Silicon martyrs mentioned earlier, Perpetua and Felicity. Certain martyr stories were told in Latin in North Africa first, and they became kind of touchstones for Christian identity in the early church. So North Africa, North African, Roman North Africa had a profound concern for the church's holiness, more than cultural respectability or defensive sacramental living. Other parts of Africa, other parts of the Christian church in the first four centuries cared about these things cultural respectability, sacramental validity, what made for a good baptism or a good Eucharist. Roman North Africa, according to the scholars I'm reading, seemed more concerned for the church's holiness. Hence their concern for people who had apostatized. Congolese Catholicism is not just an early modern diplomatic ties. The Congo was a very Catholic place. A missionary who went there after 15 years of missionaries being away, in one year baptized 100,000 people. People were so hungry to be baptized when he did his pilgrimages around the area. Thousands of people came out to be baptized. They'd been waiting for 15 years. The faith was very much alive. We've now, there's a beautiful book on the art of the Congolese Catholic Church kind of to appreciate just how profoundly Catholic this place was. And it was a very indigenized art, enculturated. Congolese culture and the Catholic Church fused in a very powerful way for a couple hundred years. And it sort of abided into the new world. Catholic Congolese took their faith with them when they were enslaved in Brazil, and maybe even into South Carolina. There were even prophetic movements. One woman was possessed by St. Anthony. She was burned at the stake. But it was sort of a sign of how deep Catholic culture was within them. That even her alleged you know, possession by an evil spirit or a saint, she thought it was a saint, people who burned her thought it was an evil spirit, it was in a Catholic idiom. Catholic assumptions dominated the conversation and led to her burning. Dennis, 
reemphasizes the tragedy of the slave trade, which undid Congolese Catholicism. So, looking ahead, it is important for us to recognize that there are real changes in the representative Christian, Catholic Christian identity in the world. Um, I grew up a Catholic Christian in Cincinnati, Ohio, and increasingly the kind of world I grew up in is not nearly, well, it's rarer and rarer. Most of my parents' friends were Catholics. Most of my friends were Catholics. I went to Catholic schools. That kind of homogenous Catholicism is really dying. But it is emerging in other places in the world. The most Catholic place I've ever been is Southeast Nigeria. I was just talking about this with someone at dinner. That's a place where in the largest market in Africa, they play the Angelus at noon. And everyone stops buying and selling, and they pray, Catholics and Protestants and Muslims, in Onitsha, Nigeria. At noon, they play the Angelus to this day. So the most Catholic place I've been is Southeast Nigeria. So the facing of practical issues is something that African Catholics continue to prioritize, not unlike Roman North African forebears. Uh, China sure she used to teach at Reed College right here in Portland. She now teaches at the University of Virginia. She's an anthropologist. She studied um, Catholic sisters in Uganda who worked global development. The Little Sisters of St. Francis is the name of the religious community, sometimes called Mother Kevin's Sisters. And she studied these American development workers. And she compared the work of the Ugandan sisters and the work of the American development workers. The American development workers had gone to universities like the University of Portland and then got graduate degrees in development studies, very highly educated, technically savvy, smart, lots of money. The Uganda sisters were educated locally, pretty simple in their approach. Her anthropological studies suggest very directly that those sisters are able to meet African needs better than the experts from outside. It's a very interesting kind of study called having heart. Um, there's something about the way people take on faith that allows local knowledge to have a particular value in meeting their practical needs, especially when it's shaped by faith. These days, theologians like Simon and I, and Charlie, Charlie and Tina, the chairman of the theology department, is here. She is, you know, it's over there. So nice to see you. Um, we care about topics like syncretism and enculturation. Syncretism is like mixing a faith that's sort of wrong, people think, and enculturation is mixing a faith with religion that's valuable and life giving. This is a complex dialectic that's an ongoing challenge. I was recently in Peru and a painting in Peru of the Last Supper from the 17th century. There's a Last Supper there with Jesus surrounded by the 12 apostles. And in the middle of the altar, in the middle of the table, is a guinea pig um, on his back, dead, ready to be eaten. Because that's a local delicacy in Peru, right? Now, that's an example of artistic enculturation. If you go to Africa, you find liturgical enculturation. 
We find places where there is theological enculturation. Sometimes people accuse that kind of enculturation of being syncretic, unhealthy, theologically invalid. This is a complex dialectical relationship. Congolese Catholicism has something to teach us about enculturation, successful enculturation. Finally, there are abiding challenges in the traditional worldview in Africa. If you're a Catholic priest in Africa, one of the things you face in many parishes is what you do when people find themselves accused of witchcraft because there's misfortune locally that can't otherwise be explained. A young child dies very suddenly. There is a, an automatic instinct in certain parts of Africa, Catholic parishes included, where you're going to find someone who's um, maybe even unconscious witchcraft <coughs> is causing this misfortune. And the job for a religious person is to find out how that is happening and to eliminate the source of the People don't think, oh, there must have been an illness. The first reflexive instinct, kind of without even thinking, is who caused this? And people don't even have to be conscious of having caused it to be able to be blamed for having caused it. How do we interpret those kinds of witchcraft accusations from a pastoral theological perspective? This is a real challenge for the African church every day. Everything. But from an historical perspective, you can sort of see something like an ongoing zeal for the holiness of the church that was already evident in Roman North Africa. That the ways Roman North Africans cared about what it, could, it meant for someone to apostatize when they were being tortured for being Christian might have something to teach us how we deal with these kinds of accusations of people of being witches whether they're conscious or unconscious. So, what kind of gifts does the African church have to give? I think African Christians have a deep tie and attachment to Jesus. And they believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not accidental that Catholic charismatic, the charismatic Catholicism has become normative in many parts of Africa go to a Catholic church in lots of the continent, it will feel like a charismatic prayer meeting for Mass. The kind of back and forth that would be typical of an evangelical or Pentecostal church here, God is great all the time, all the time, God is great, that's his nature. Has anyone ever heard that in an evangelical church? Yeah. So, that's typical of Catholic Masses in lots of places in Sub-Saharan Africa. It's not true yet in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I grew up. Um, but it gives us insight into these desires for holiness and allows us to reframe witchcraft accusations. There are also profound examples of virtue among African Christians. My colleague at Notre Dame, Father Emmanuel Katongale, who's a Ugandan priest, has really done some wonderful work raising our stories of reconciliation in Africa. There's also a dictionary of African Christian biography online that has short vignettes about notable African Christians from across the continent, DACE.org. Um, 
And you can write, it's an open source, you can write these biographies yourself. Maybe for Lent, a Lenten resolution might be for you to go to DACB.org and read a biography of one or two notable African Christians. Um, the Uganda Martyrs, for instance. Um, or Christian Cherjane and his companions in, in Algeria, whose cause for canonization was just introduced. Have any of you seen the book, the movie Of Gods and Men, the story of the martyrdom of these Catholic monks in northern Africa? Um, Christian Cherjane is French, but he lived in North Africa and was killed in a complex circumstance there. Uh, anti-Islamic violence, violence by Muslims against the government. He was caught up in it. But Africa has lots of heroes to share with us. Its Christians have lots of heroes to share with us. Um, and on this eve of Ash Wednesday, Mardi Gras, to learn about some of the heroes of the African Catholic Church might be a new Lenten resolution. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for the invitation. And I, I'm also glad to take questions that people might have. Um, again, this is a work in progress, so I love challenging questions to, to think with. Yeah, hi. Have you ever read the book, uh, A Distant Mirror by Barbara Tucker? Distant Mirror by Barbara Tucker, yes. Um, she talked about the Middle Ages when the Black Plague came along, and that brings up this witchcraft thing. People thought God had abandoned them, and they went into the dark arts and all of these things. That's very interesting that when things really go bad, they start stepping away from religion a little bit. God's abandoned. Yeah, um, in Africa, it's not so much that they live, they're leaving a religious, the religious idiom entirely when misfortune hits. It's that in some ways the Christian idiom in which they claim to be believing isn't nearly as compelling as the traditional idiom in which misfortune had, had had an explanation that was related to how you related to spirits, especially ancestors usually. So it's not quite analogous, but I appreciate the reference to Barbara Tuckman's Distant Mirror, which is about the Middle Ages, and makes, he spoke a little bit about how the Black Death, when it came, caused people to really, it was such a, a loss of profound, taken for granted things that God might protect you, that people started to question the deep and Yeah, sorry. Just to follow up to that first question, how much does your research engage the indigenous religions uh, of Africa as the religious motif or the fuel for the Christian faith? Christianity is uh, um, a lot, but in this, I'm not so much talking about that here in this presentation, but I, I mean, I do, I study African religions, that's sort of what I study as well. Um, now, again, regionally, it's hard, you know, some people talk about African religions. For me, the biggest question is, is African religion pre-Christianity and pre-Islam a single thing, or is it better to understand it as a multiple thing? Do Africa's thousand or so languages kind of link to different religious systems that really are different from one another, or is there something singular called African religion 
And scholars have disagreements about that among themselves, including African scholars. I think that's an interesting question. I'm more on the side of multiplicity than unity, but that's just an instinct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are the theological valuations of those two terms. That syncretism from theologians tends to be described negatively as um, the wrong sort of mixing of culture and religion. So some people joke it's a ten-letter, four-letter word for theologians. Well, my question is, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm trained as a philosopher. So yeah, for us, for anthropologists, it's great. So it's my just question, descriptive. My, my question is, does the negative side of syncretism perhaps push against the For sure. Actually, personally, I sort of think of syncretism as a natural thing that's always going to accompany religious change of any sort. But theologians who get anxious about it can, can negatively value it because they feel as if it's, um, it softens the Christian message in ways that uh, dilutes Christian truths. I, I don't... I sort of tend to use the term more anthropologically myself and descriptively rather than in a value laden way. Personally. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Dina. Africa has been the center of economic, political, and social upheavals. I wonder if your research includes how the church, the Catholic Church, is the shaping of this Catholic Church in the midst of these appeals. I yeah, think it's um, part of your research. You know, I had this interesting experience. I was living in Africa at the time of one of the school shootings in this country. And an older African woman came up to me, I'm so sorry what's happened in your country. You must be devastated by this school shooting, which was not in my hometown. I didn't know anybody involved. She said, it's amazing how your schools become like places of gang warfare. The reason I say that is because the upheaval of Africa is also very regionally specific and doesn't affect all Africans. So but to answer the question is hard, right? Northern Nigeria has had a profound amount of unrest that's been in the news lately due to Boko Haram, the seizing of the Jibok girls and other kinds of massacres. Um, Southern Sudan is in somewhat of a civil war. Uh, there's certainly violence in other parts of Africa we could talk about. South Africa is currently undergoing political turmoil, not so much violence, but political turmoil. The Catholic Church's leverage in those situations varies greatly depending on its presence in those settings and locales. For instance, in northern Nigeria, the Catholic Church's presence is pretty modest. So its capacity to do much is limited. 
certainly compared to Islamic authorities, would probably have a much more large role to play. In South Sudan, however, the Catholic Church is pretty prominent. Some of the leading citizens of that rather new, very new country, one of the world's newest countries, would be the Catholic bishops of that country. And they're, I'm sure, working very hard to create peace. But I don't, I, my research doesn't talk so, doesn't look so much at those efforts, just because that's not the part of the world I study so directly. These days, the countries I study, Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania, tend not to be sites of so much turmoil. Northern Uganda was in the 90s. You might have remembered the Invisible Children Movement and that, that video that was made by some American teenagers or college students to raise awareness about the violence against young people in Northern Uganda due to the Lord's resistance for me. But these days, those two countries are pretty peaceful, relatively speaking. So, but Africa's, you know, with 900 million people, most Africans don't live in fear. But again, if you live in Eastern Congo, you live in a certain amount of unrest right now, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I claim to be theologically ignorant of our history. I'm wondering uh, how you see the American church incorporating some of this historical, uh, black historic history into, into everyday um, application, if you see any movement in that regard. And also, how it could be used to push back against what I would call uh, white Christian nationalism. Yeah, um, I do think um, the more we can be aware of how the Holy Spirit is moving people to live the Christian life diversely and powerfully, the more access we have to heroic examples of a virtuous life. I do think that's the biggest value of being a globally conscious Christian person, is that there are million, billions of interesting Christian lives being lived that can inspire us. I, I tend to think Christianity is more caught than taught, right? I love that old proverb, an ounce of mother is worth a pound of clergy. Um, you know, we, we learn our faith from examples of faithful people. So the richer the network of examples we can draw upon, the more rich our life of faith can be. And the, the life of African Christians can inspire us. I think that's in some ways the most important thing. Now there are particular gifts that African Christianity does have to give us. Capacity to celebrate, to be hospitable, to think about Christianity in relationship to their, their historical lineage. Africans venerate ancestors in ways that we tend not to think of the same kind of venerating way. And they've started to incorporate in the ways they think about the saints, but also ways they think about their own genealogies. I love that. Because it reminds all of us that we are the sons and daughters of people who are the sons and daughters of people who are the sons and daughters of people. And that the examples of virtue that we can draw on are also people on our own lineage. Africans are very mindful of that. Many of them have ancestors they, they know very quite a bit about who weren't Christian. So they can even draw back to people who came to Christianity, maybe within their own historical memory or the historical memory of their parents. So they're mindful of the richness of their own personal experience. Does that make sense?
Can we take one more question? Sure. A student. A student. There were many places where missionaries were already on the ground before colonialism was in place, but there are other places where colonialism was in place first. I would say, comparatively speaking, it was better for Christianity if it was there first. Like in Uganda, which is one of the most Christian places in Africa. Christianity was in place for about 15 years before the colonizers were in charge. Let's thank Father Paul for his wonderful talk. Thanks so much, and thanks to the Caravana Center for this invitation. It's an honor to be here. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you very much.